It's more than a year since Fiji's interim administration scrapped the constitution, sacked the judges and introduced its new legal order. The self-appointed Prime Minister Frank Bainamarama says he needs to deal with corruption, change the coup culture and put Fiji back on its feet economically before tackling electoral reform. Despite pressure from overseas, the date for a return to democracy is still set for 2014. So are any changes apparent in Fiji? Philippa Tolley and Megan Whelan from Radio New Zealand International recently visited the country to assess what's happening. A quiet Saturday afternoon in one of the many villages that straddle the road between the tourist centre Nandi and the capital Suva. It's often said that many of the tensions over leadership in Fiji affect the cities, not the rural parts of the country. But the self-appointed Prime Minister, Commodore Frank Bainimarama, says major changes are underway as the administration works towards wiping away racial division and overcoming the coup culture that has resulted in the overthrow of four governments in the last 20 years. It's approaching four years since the military threw out the democratically elected government and took power. When judges sitting here in Suva's High Court deemed that illegal last year, the constitution was abrogated and the judiciary sacked. The interim attorney general, Ayaz Sayed Kayum, spoke of a new legal order. In practice, this has meant a judiciary that includes many new employees, especially from Sri Lanka, and legislation by decree. A report in the last month or so by Fiji's Citizens Constitutional Forum found that Eight decrees involved substantial law reform. Twenty-four decrees decentralise power and thereby decrease accountability. Eleven decrees cannot be challenged in court. They include a major overhaul of the penal code, as much of it was outdated, especially in areas to do with sexual offending. Mr Syed Kayum told me that he thought the new legislation had been generally well received. It's obviously a mindset change that needs to take place, in particular those people who are at the forefront. So if I report a particular complaint, the person coming and doing an investigation needs to be aware of that, the person prosecuting, and then the judge obviously who hears the matter. The test of it is acceptance and the usage of it. So obviously the society at large needs to accept it. The people who actually implement it are actually using the laws and definitely they're using the laws. Along with creating a new legal order, there is a drive to get the economy back on its feet. The triple whammy of a military takeover, extreme weather events and the global financial downturn has hit Fiji's economy badly. The latest report from the International Monetary Fund on Fiji speaks of growth remaining highly uncertain and a fragile economic outlook. Aya Syed Kayum, who is the Tourism Minister as well as the Interim Attorney General, speaks of the huge support the regime has given the tourism industry, said to be worth some $11.5 billion, way ahead of the other significant earner, Sugar. He believes the sector has begun to turn around. Generally, investor confidence in the tourism sector, any tourism sector, is when they see um, opportunities in that particular environment and uh, with the policies that government has put in place ranging from the unprecedented levels of funding for marketing to Fiji as not just branding in terms of destination but also some tactical marketing. We've given them $23.5 million now two years in a row and we're looking at giving them appropriate funding in the future also. 
Some of that money has gone on campaigns like Fiji Me. In time and space, we can all be free. And the result has been huge interest, as Megan Whelan found out at an industry expo on the resort island of Indanaru near Nandi. Tourism is by far Fiji's biggest foreign exchange earner, but in 2009, political issues and floods saw a significant downturn in the industry. Here at the Mbula Fiji Tourism Exchange, a kind of speed dating event between hotels and resorts, operators and wholesalers, there's optimism the industry can bounce back. But high atop the hills over Natandola Beach on the Coral Coast, there's a different story. Near here is the location of a failed resort. Its collapse resulted in the country's pension fund writing off around $220 million. So can the industry recover from bad weather, bad publicity and several years of discounting prices? The chief executive officer of Fiji Tourism, Josefa Tuamoto, says the market has to be driven by demand and that is returning. The global situation has made a lot of impact on Fiji. Coming off the very negative PR on the floods that we had last year, and particularly with the global financial crisis, and we are still reeling from that, you know. And I think the hotels that are struggling, and I'm hoping that they will pick up during this peak season, you know. Uh, I think most of them will. I think this is it, you know. This is the, the most difficult time is now. Josefa Tuamoto says this year's figures are on a par with 2008 and they are on track to achieving targets. But that doesn't necessarily mean the industry is profitable and there appears to be several years of discounting ahead. The head of the Fiji Hotel Association, Dixon Sito, says the hotels are now setting their rates based on the cash flow required to meet their immediate needs. Some of the parties already rolled out their discounted rates to March of next year, which is the contracting period. April to March. So it's interesting to see what sort of rates we can get from April 1 next year. Dixon Sito says the industry needs to look at three things, length of stay, arrival numbers and the yield per room. And one of the ways it's trying to grow is with the flashpacker market, a kind of upmarket backpackers with pools and cocktails. Here at Mango Bay Resort, one of Fiji's first, they offer activities like scuba diving and village visits, which help to increase the length of stay. The resort's marketing manager, Claire McConnell, says when the big resorts are still discounting their prices, it makes it hard for the smaller players. But she thinks Fiji tourism is getting back on track. It's something globally that's existing through people wanting just to get more involved with other cultures. I'm experiencing different elements and I think Fiji's got a lot of potential for that. The alternative traveller, the backpacker, the university market, it's growing and it's um, people are getting more disposable income so they want to spend on travelling. The world's getting a little bit smaller I suppose so they're learning about different cultures and wanting to go see them for themselves. Back at the tourism fair and merchants try to sell the country's almost 10,000 hotel beds. That number would have been much bigger without high-profile failures like Natandola Beach and Mommy Bay. One leading politician told me someone would get a bargain if they could snap up investments in those resorts. Lalati Resort on Benga Island is itself under new ownership after the previous owners were forced to sell. Its sales manager Lisa Costello says the industry is definitely picking up.
we have had a fair few returnees, so I think once people are familiar with Fiji, things like coups don't tend to frighten them away too much. But also the devaluation of the Fiji dollar, I think, has encouraged particularly the New Zealand and Australian market because their dollar goes a lot further now that they're in Fiji. Sugar is the next big industry on which the interim government is putting focus. Frequently described as the backbone of the economy, the industry supports up to a quarter of Fiji's population of nearly 900,000, and it earns the country an average of $86 million a year. In its prime, Fiji's sugar industry was secure, with guaranteed prices from the European Union, but that comfortable position has turned around dramatically since the end of preferential pricing in 2009. The Fiji Sugar Corporation owns the country's four mills and has the government as its major shareholder. The corporation's chief executive, Dao Sharon, acknowledges its dire state. A number of reform programs that were initially envisaged, uh, the progress on these reforms have not really progressed well. Uh, so we're having some difficulties in getting these initiatives and these programs you know, on the ground. So this is affecting the overall performance of the sugar industry at the moment. What areas of those reforms that are not off the ground at the moment? The major one that requires a lot of effort and, and initiative to, to really make some progress is the increase in the cane production. And this has been a major area of concern to, to the sugar industry. The drop in prices at the end of the deal with the European Union has been a disincentive for farmers, but so too has the non-renewal of leases to farm on Indigenous land. Under previous governments, leases came to be set at around 30 years, amid fears Indigenous Fijian owners were losing control of their land. The current Permanent Secretary for Sugar, Manasi Veningi, believes the tenure system is at the root of the sugar industry's problems, but he says the interim government is working on it. What government is, is trying now is to make sure that there's a long tenure system of say about 90, 70 years yeah? to make sure that uh, the industry is viable and sustainable. We have got the land reform in place now that is currently being done. The land reform program will mean uh, landowners now uh, are very much willing to give land out again for release. The Interim Attorney-General Ayaz Sayad Kayum speaks of a need to convince landowners of the benefits of longer leases, which in turn provide a surer footing for growers. The land reform process is to have an attitudinal change, to let people know that idle land is of value to nobody in that sense, economic sense, and therefore there are a lot of benefits to be gained from leasing it out at market rates, uh, making people have access to that land uh, so they are able to then contribute to economic growth and commercial farming. But there are big questions over whether the government can afford all it plans. An economist at the University of the South Pacific, based in Suva, Wadan Nasi, says there are real worries over the lack of financial information. Our problem with the Auditor General's report is that the last report was for 2006 and, and this government has some kind of an, a committee looking at, uh, at, at Auditor General's reports and they keep discussing what was going on in 2006, whereas the major overs expenditure by government took place in 2007, 2008 and probably 2009 as well. Now we have no idea what really took place you know, in those years and whether the money was spent wisely or where it was supposed to be allocated. There seem to be reports that certainly the Army's budget and perhaps the police budget have been overspent 
significantly? Well, not only have they been overspent, they have been uh, increased uh, quite significantly compared to 2006. So the government has been uh, running deficits, you know, in all these uh, three years, and the public debt has been rising. So essentially, the, the burden of funding current expenditure is being passed on to future generations. Uh, government's liquidity position, I understand, is very, very dire at the moment. So really, government is not in a position to do any great uh, amounts of capital expenditure which might be needed to offset the major decline in private investment expenditure. In a recent report on Fiji's pension fund, the National Provident Fund and the Reserve Bank, Professor Nasi expressed his fears about the operation of these two institutions. He highlighted the amount the pension fund was lending to the government, saying if any more was lent, it would amount to the fund repaying its own loans to the government. He also accuses the Reserve Bank of stepping outside its role as regulator by lending to the loss-making Fiji Sugar Corporation. A number of commentators speak of shuffling scarce money around. At the same time, Fiji is struggling to maintain infrastructure, especially in the wake of cyclones Thomas and Mick and the floods of early last year. Farmers complain of the difficulties and costs of getting cane to market. Tram systems were put in early last century, but an indication of the state of infrastructure in Fiji can be seen here in Singatoka in the Western Division. The floods that hit here early last year took out the tram bridge, and now half lies in the water, supports and tracks demolished by debris. It's too expensive to rebuild. That means cane grown on one side of the river has to be moved by road to the nearest mill. This farm belonged to my father. Uh, after he died, then I took over the farm. From, I think, about year 2001, I'm cultivating this farm. Cane farmers still need convincing there is a future for their industry, but like this grower in the Western Division, they believe it's essential for Fiji's future. If there is no sugar cane, this country can't survive. And the people working in the town and white-collar job, they won't get what they are getting now. Because farmers, when they get the cane proceeds, they go and do shopping. If sugar cane farming is no more over here, I think this country can't survive. EU funding of more than $200 million to help develop the industry when pricing agreements ended has been withheld due to the lack of progress towards a return to democracy. So far, $124 million worth of aid has been permanently lost and the whole amount will eventually go if the current administration does not change course. Another cane grower, who also didn't want to give his name because of possible reprisals, acknowledges the impact successive coups have had on his sector. He says with the country's leaders changing every few years, no one has had the time to deal with the industry's problems. A few years back, our government, they've already collapsed. They, did, they could not do anything, like the country were, has already drowned. So to salvage this country, at the moment we have this government, they have to spend a lot, and to salvage this country they have to do more and they need time. He says farmers are heartbroken as they struggle with increasing production costs, lower prices and poor performance by the mills crushing the cane to produce raw sugar for export. At the same time, the growers have no official voice. The board of the growers' body, the Cane Growers' Council, was dismissed last year by the interim government. It's being restructured as, like many other organisations, it was said to be politicised, and the regime has little tolerance for any sector that might provide opposition.
this blitz to suppress dissenting voices has seen a major change in institutions in Fiji and within the civil service. The extent of the recrafting can be seen in the number of military appointments. Lieutenant Colonel Pio Tiko Nduandua, Prime Minister's Office, Lieutenant Colonel Manasa Vaningi, Provincial Development, Lieutenant Colonel Naomi Lueni, Lands and Mineral Resources, Commander Viliami Napoto, Fisheries and Forests, Colonel Mason Smith, Agriculture. The list of military appointments goes on, and there are also those with family connections, such as Ratu Meli Bainimarama, the Permanent Secretary of Indigenous Affairs and brother of the Interim Prime Minister. Supporters of the interim government say the military involvement is because New Zealand and Australia's travel bans mean anyone taking up a position with the regime will not be allowed to travel to or through either country, making the positions unpopular to civilians. Those more sceptical of the regime's purpose say the positions are offered as a reward and also to secure the military-backed government's hold on Fiji. That group continues to be supported by decrees, which are now approved by a president rather than being created by an elected parliament. The General Secretary of the Teachers' Union, Agni Dao Singh, describes how his ability to bargain in wage negotiations on behalf of his members was wiped away. He took his case to the tribunal, but when the government negotiators came in, the whole process was changed with a single, unchallengeable piece of paper. He read it and he looked at me and said, uh, Mr Singh, I'm sorry I cannot proceed with this case anymore because there is a state services decree and this is what I've received now. This decree says no court, no tribunal is going to hear any case in terms of any claims by on salary increase by trade unions. On and you have no way service. of challenging that decree? It further said that any case that is in the process must be terminated forthwith and uh, reported to the registrar of the courts to file away. And this is not to be challenged. And that was the end of it. The executive director of the Citizens Constitutional Forum, the Reverend Akili Ambaki, argues that not only are the decrees not open to scrutiny or consultation before publication, few are doing much good. They're done behind closed doors and they come out and we, we have to do the chasing to find out uh, where they are. For instance, the crimes decree is one of uh, concern because it places the police and the military above the law in a way, uh, in a particular category. The decrees are generally not challengeable in court, nor are any cases allowed that are to do with the overthrow of the Constitution. At Nandi Magistrates Court, the president of Fiji's Law Society, Dorsami Naidu, told me the whole legal environment is fraught with difficulty. We do not have a constitution in place and all these decrees that are being made, uh, I don't think there is enough thought put into it. They're just being brought out, a lot of them, and it affects how we function in court, how we can appear for clients in, in asking for bail and in uh, representing them better because at the moment the accused and even uh, lawyers have very little power to impact on what's happening within the judicial system. The Interim Attorney-General says the Magistrates' Court is still short of judges after the entire judiciary was sacked last year. He says the regime continues to look towards Sri Lanka for replacements, but already some concerned about human rights voice worries about the level of experience of some of those employed. Dorsami Naidu says it isn't earlier backlogs that are causing problems, but the numbers of judicial officers on the ground now.
It's the number of judges that were re-employed or, or judicial officers who were willing to take up appointments under the regime. And it's also a result of the regime taking very drastic measures against the legal fraternity. And I think it's time now that the regime understood that we should all get together and dialogue in this area and not the regime trying to impose its views on the legal fraternity. Among measures put in place by the regime to ensure it says fair practice was a requirement for all lawyers to reapply for a practising licence. Those licences are now approved by the High Court Registrar, another military appointment. Lawyers can now also be brought up before a legal commission headed by an interim government appointment. It's these sorts of increasingly wide-ranging powers that have also been proposed in the draft media decree. The media remain under censorship under the provisions of the public emergency regulations, which have now been extended until later this month. Megan Whelan spoke to local journalists about what it was like trying to do their jobs under ongoing restrictions. Rebuilding at the government-owned Fiji Broadcasting Corporation, which is being kitted out with television studios and a new newsroom. It's widely thought the new studios will be used to broadcast a government information programme. And that's just one of the ways the regime continues to exert its influence over the media. A media decree which the regime says is to ensure accurate and balanced reporting is due to be introduced, though there's no indication of when. The news director for the Fiji Broadcasting Corporation, Stanley Simpson, says while journalists strive for accuracy and fairness, under the media regulations there's no balance. There's only one source we can get information from, as stipulated under the public emergency regulations. We can't get balance uh, because the opposition or people who have opposing views, at the moment they cannot be heard. That's the law. Journalists say that many are thinking of leaving the profession. Stanley Simpson says it takes dedication to work under the restrictions. All my journalists love their job, that's why they're here. You'd have to love this job or have a passion for it to be working under conditions we're working under. The newly appointed Acting Permanent Secretary for Information, Sharon Smith-Johns, says it may be time for media organisations to have some fresh blood. It's probably time that we got rid of some of the older journalists, quite frankly, and we got some new ideas and new reporting. But I don't think there's going to be a mass exodus of journalists here. And the ones that are fed up, they're probably... It's time for them to go, and it is time for us to develop the younger talent, and we have such great talent in this country. A quick recap of the headlines. Good news for domestic air travellers. Commerce Commission says they can't be blamed for ATH's decline in profits, and rugby's prodigal son vies again for rugby jumper. The regime says public emergency regulations will end when the media decree is in place. But after more than a year of the restraints, many in the media now concede they are self-censoring. The draft media decree has been described as draconian for its provision to impose prison sentences of up to five years on journalists and impose large fines. A media lecturer at the University of the South Pacific, Shailendra Singh, says it's not the first time a government there has tried to restrict media freedom. There is every chance that they will abuse the decree and use it for their own advantage. And we are speaking from experience here. Now every government in Fiji, whether they came in through the barrel of the gun or through the ballot box, they've had a very anti-media stand. Everyone is hoping 
that the government will take into consideration the concerns expressed in the consultations and the media decree will come in in a milder form. Less than three months ago, the administration passed an immunity decree which covered the regime's installed president, the prime minister, all the army, police and prison officers. The limitation of liability for prescribed political events stretches back to not only the takeover of 2006, but the events of the 2000 coup by George Spate and the attempted mutiny at the barracks later that year. The decree provides for... Absolute and unconditional immunity is irrevocably granted to all prescribed persons from any criminal prosecution and from any civil or any other liability in any court or tribunal in any proceeding. Only those already convicted in relation to the events of 2000 are exempted from the decree. Those who continue to advocate for a return to democracy are worried developments such as the immunity decree are a further indication of the regime securing its grasp on power. The interim Prime Minister, Commodore Frank Bainimarama, has been spending time in the provinces and this month said the people were telling him they were happy for him to hold elections later than 2014. But the director of the Pacific Concerns Resource Centre, Tupo Veri, feels 2014 is still too distant a date. When you have a judiciary that is compromised, when you have a civil service that is not independent, these are the kind of uh, rot that um, when you look at that and you look at a person getting access to water, it's uh, the, the impact of those kind of activities are far more widespread than a person getting access to clean water today. During his trips out of Suva, Commodore Bainimarama has been taking a pragmatic lead in getting jobs done, such as repairing roads or fixing bridges. This dynamism appears to have increased his support in some areas. But the national director of the ousted SDL party, Patheli Kunavuai, argues there was more to leading a nation than populist decisions. What is the use of connecting roads and getting schools repaired if you don't have a proper government in place? A government that is selected by people. We have roads. It's not a new thing. It's not something new that you have to put aside, going back to constitutionality, and then fixing the roads. That's a bit naive. The international community is still waiting for the much-talked-about dialogue on the way forward, due to start in February, to get underway and the Pacific Island Forum Working Group on Fiji, which includes New Zealand's Foreign Affairs Minister, Murray McCulley, reported in the last few weeks that the situation was worsening. This came farmer reflects that pessimism. Now the farmers are just, uh, when they are sitting like this, they are talking about what will happen in the future. And they are, there are uncertainties. They don't know how they will survive. But despite continuing criticism of the regime, the ousted opposition leader Mick Beddoes remains hopeful about Fiji's future. I think we as, as a people have to come to the realisation that we cannot allow this kind of thing to continue to happen. At the end of the day, in spite of the fact that we may have different views and we may be sitting on other sides of the fence, you will find that whenever we bump into each other, it is cordial. It is respectful, which leads me to believe that at the end of the day, Fiji having among the most wonderful people and friendliest people in the world, what we need to do is exercise 
that that strength of ours, which is the friendly people, and start being a little bit more friendlier towards each other. But at present, there is little sign of that friendliness. The interim prime minister decided the forum working group was not welcome to visit Fiji to get the lie of the land, and it seems unlikely that Fiji's suspension from the regional body will be altered in any way before the annual leaders' gathering in August. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Philippa Tolley and Megan Whelan. Technical production was by Colette Jansen and it was produced by Sue Ingram. Fiji's Interim Prime Minister Commodore Frank Bainamarama failed to respond to repeated requests for an interview.